This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hey, everybody. Bienvenidas, bienvenidos. Welcome back to New Books in Latin American Studies. This is Pamela Fuentes, host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Noah Horowitz about his new book, El Chapo, the untold story of the world's most infamous drug lord, published by Atria Books this year. Noah, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much for having me on. Noah, let's start this interview by knowing more about you. Can you tell us a bit about yourself? I am a, I'm a reporter uh, based in New York City. Um, I've been, you know, I have a lot of years under my belt of working as sort of a, a local news reporter in, in New York City uh, for a variety of smaller publications. Um, then I did some freelancing for a while and uh, then I started covering the trial of El Chapo and the, you know, everything, everything from that moment has sort of been a, a uh, you know, pretty much all about that, you know, so uh, here we are. But yeah, I'm a, I'm a reporter uh, in New York, uh, interested in sort of the you know, war on drugs and its intersections with, with sort of U.S. foreign policy and, um, and it's the coercive relationship between the United States and, and Latin America. Uh, that's, that's me and my interests. So yeah, you are already telling us that you're interested on this and that you covered uh, El Chapo's trial. Yeah, sorry, tell if us I, how... sorry if I got ahead of myself there. <laughs> how, how you came to write this book? So, you know, to be perfectly honest, I kind of lucked into uh, covering the, the trial. Um, you know, I, I, had, I had applied for a job at, at Rolling Stone and they, you know, weren't hiring just yet. You know, as as many places are, are often not hiring just yet, but they were like, "Listen, man, like you know, you speak Spanish." Um, I had just come from, you know, I just spent like half of 2018 in Peru, um, so my Spanish was was a lot sharper than it is now. Um, and I had done some reporting in the U.S. on sort of domestic drug policy, and I had done a lot of reporting in my sort of local reporter days on courts in New York City. So basically, they were like, "Look, man, you speak Spanish. Um, you've done some drug policy stuff, and you speak Spanish. Like, do you have any interest in covering the trial of El Chapo?" Um, to which, you know, I obviously said yes immediately. You know, it was a it was an incredible opportunity, and uh, the you know the book basically grew out of that. You know, I was I was covering the trial every day for close to three months, from November 2018 to early February 2019. Um, and after that, I just sort of you know, launched into 
launched into this and spent you know, the rest of basically the rest of 2019 um, mostly in in Mexico. I was living in in Mexico City and sort of using that as my home base, and then you know bouncing back and forth to Sinaloa to Ciudad Juarez. You know, I flew up to Chicago to see uh, uh, the sentencing hearing for Vicentillo Zambada, um, you know, uh, who's a character in the book. Um, and, uh, you know, yeah, it just, you know, basically uh, one thing kind of kept leading to another. And, and I was you know, very fortunate to be able to spend all this time on it. And your, your book is very engaging from the beginning. And in the first pages, you show a lot of skepticism of people you talk about during the process of writing the book. You mentioned that well-intended friends, noodles on Twitter, and even a customs border protection agent at the airport, who of course already had watched Narcos, wonder if you could find something new to say about El Chapo yeah. or the drugs trade. I'm glad they didn't discourage <laughs> you. But how would you explain this shared feeling where all this familiarity, where all this familiarity with the topic comes from? After you wrote this book, is there really nothing else to say? It's so funny because at the time, um, at the time I was like kind of annoyed that I kept getting that question, uh, especially from, like you said, I was, I was flying from Mexico to JFK and I, um, I you know, went through the, uh, the customs check and the, the guy was, the CBP officer was asking me about what I was doing in Mexico. I said, journalism. He was like, what kind? I told him, Uh, you know, writing a book about El Chapo. And literally he's like, I've already watched Narcos Mexico, man. What, you, what, what more can you get? And at the time, I think I was like, I was like, listen, man, just buy the book when it comes out. You'll see. Um, but, you know, it's a good question, honestly. I, I wouldn't necessarily say that, you know, assuming that because you've watched Narcos Mexico, um, you, you, you know, I have nothing else to add. That's a stupid way of phrasing the question for Mr. CDP agent, but it's a good question. You know, what, what can I add? And I think with that, the, the, the sort of ubiquity of that question, when I announced what I was doing, tells us that, yes, there is sort of a, a, a certain saturation um, with regards to El Chapo. Um, there, you know, There is, there's books, you know, there's uh, the Netflix show, yeah. uh, there's uh, Narcos Mexico, there's, um, you know, so much information out there. And I think, you know, from, from, the, from, the, from the beginning of the sort of the reporting process of, of, of reporting, the, reporting, the process of reporting the book, um, I had a pretty clear understanding that I, I never really set out to necessarily get some big scoop, you know, to get some big sort of thing that people didn't know about El Chapo, because to be perfectly honest, um, I didn't have the expertise at the time and I didn't have the, the time and I didn't have like, you know, the access. And so what I really, you know, what I really set out to do um, from the beginning And this is sort of why, honestly, why I took on the book. You know, I, I had some doubts about uh, another book about El Chapo, um, but I set out to try to put the story in context and sort of use the, you know, use this well-known figure and, and look at how his life sort of matches up with 
you know, the various phases of the war on drugs and the development um, and sort of explosion of the, the drug trade in Mexico. And I, you know, at the end of all this, I really do think that there is value in, um, in, 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 in sort of using the story of El Chapo to examine these issues, because to be perfectly honest, you know, people in the United States, uh, it's hard to get them to care about things that are outside of the United States, uh, especially if it's not immediately in the news. You know, we, we've spent the last 20 years ignoring Afghanistan and now suddenly everyone cares and they're not gonna in a couple of weeks, I tell you that. Um, but people know El Chapo, you know, it's this, it's this, you know, it's a, it's a sexy story. It's a, it's an interesting story. It's bizarre. It's there's, there's, you know, cinematic twists and turns. And, um, I, I, I eventually sort of came to see it as a useful way of engaging readers, you know, to sort of weave this genuinely wild story, uh, in with the social, political, economic factors that were happening at the time and were directly affecting his career and directly affecting his his, his business. Yeah, no, and definitely you give the historical context and some current events. But I would like you to bring us for a moment to the fieldwork you did in Sinaloa, which is El Chapo's hometown. Particularly, I would like you to share with us the experiences with people which provided clues or contacts like your fixer, Miguel Angel, mm-hmm. or the librarians that gave you information about newspapers. If you can start by explaining what a fixer is, for instance, that would be great. Yeah. So I took my first trip to uh, Sinaloa in April of 2019. And I, I had never reported in Mexico, certainly not in Sinaloa. And there's this whole sort of cottage industry in in many places of local journalists working as, as what's called a fixer for um, either international journalists or, you know, sometimes even, um, you know, if it's really dicey, really hectic and unsafe, sometimes they'll even work for, you know, people within Mexico. You know, I know if someone knows Culiacan, someone might go to them. Anyways, I linked up with this guy, Miguel Angel Vega, who is um, just a, you know, he, he's sort of the guy in Culiacan if you want to, um, you know, if you want to visit El Chapo's hometown of Latina. Uh, and, you know, he has really good contacts and he just, you know, he knows what he's doing. And, you know, just to pause for a second to give my eternal thanks to, to Miguel, um, I would not have been able to do this without him. Also, a quick plug, uh, he has a book out now called El Fixer. Um, it's a memoir of his, his work as a, as a fixer. Um, and, you know, if there's any people out there listening, uh, I'm, I'm really trying to get that translated and published in the United States. So if, you, if you're someone who can help me do that, hit me up. Um, so I, I land in Sinaloa and I meet up with Miguel Angel. And, um, you know, he... He was, you know, through his, his he, he has good relationships with people in Latuna, in El Chapo's hometown. And so he was able to sort of get me access there because this is a, this, you know, this is a, a very rural little village, maybe five or six hours outside of Culiacan. You have to drive, you know, a really 
pretty arduous journey to get there. And when you get to, uh, you know, basically the valley that Latuna is in at the end of it, um, you know, there's a checkpoint and there's guys with guns and walkie talkies. And if they don't know who you are and they don't like the look of you, they're not going to let you in. Right. And so thanks to Miguel and his, his contacts in Latuna, we were able to get through. Um, so I went, I made three visits to Latuna. Two of them I stayed overnight um, and, you know, spent, spent a lot of time just kind of sitting around and, and talking to people and getting a feel of the place. Um, and then another just sort of passing through. Um, but, you know, I'll, I'll tell you, like the, the conversations that I had in Latuna, um, the, the kind of like the, the interviews, I would say, um, they weren't always the most useful, honestly, because uh, you have to understand that the, the people talk to reporters for a reason, for many reasons. And one of the reasons I think some people talk to reporters in Latuna is honestly PR. You know, they want to they want to paint a good picture of their hometown boy. And so this, the, you know, the, the stories that, that, you know, relatives of El Chapo tell are often kind of repeated, you know, a bit stale. Like we get it. He loved his mom. We get it. He walked up and down the road selling oranges or whatever. Um, you know, he might've done that and we certainly know he loves his mom, but I was much more interested in getting the sense of the place and getting the sense of where El Chapo came from. Um, and understanding why so many people in that area uh, have been, you know, were involved in the drug trade, have been involved in the drug trade and are involved in the drug trade, you know? And I, I couldn't have done this book without having for myself an understanding of what this place looks like, what it feels like, you know, what the, what the sun feels like, uh, the, you know, the dust from a, from a car, seeing these like young guys on ATVs with AK-47s zooming up and down the mountain and, and also seeing the, the poverty and seeing the, the sort of alienation from, from the Mexican state and alienation from, from any other opportunity outside of the drug trade. That was really important to me both to, to see it and to, to relay it to, to readers because you can't look at the story of El Chapo. You can't look at the story of the drug trade in Mexico or in Sinaloa without understanding how it fits into the larger economic and social um, you know, makeup of the state. Yeah, definitely. And just because I'm a historian and I'm obsessed with the research in libraries, I will again bring back to the librarians and because there is a scene where you describe going through the newspapers and finding different narratives changing there. So can you just like bring yeah. us to that library and what you found in the newspapers? Yeah, so I, you know, I... I wish I had been able to do more archival research. Um, I, 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 I could spend days doing that, you know, I, and um, I, so there's this, there's this, uh, there's this uh, historical archive in Culiacan um, that I'm sure I only scratched the surface of what's there, but one of the, one of the really useful things they have is, you know, every major newspaper in Sinaloa going back, you know, decades, decades. Um, and so I was trying to, you know, I, I wasn't necessarily, but let me back up and say a little bit about sort of sourcing. Like I tried to, I, I tended to avoid using, um, sort of contemporaneous news articles as sources, you know, to, to sort of 
build scenes or or name people or whatever because i think that generally like in the in a topic as as murky as the war on drugs um the the sort of contemporaneous news articles can be a little bit um you know untrustworthy start things change the story changes over time something that was published to, today we'll find out later was not true and it's mexico you know it's it's uh, you, you you can't always um you know, there's so much just obfuscation by the government and so much, you know, pressure on the media to tell, say this or that, that I, I wasn't necessarily willing to use any um, news articles in the U.S. or in Mexico as direct sort of primary sources. But I did find that looking at sort of a, a broader picture of, of newspapers from a certain time was really useful. Um, and so, so, so specifically, um, I was looking at, April of 2008, uh, which is when there was this great rift in Culiacan between El Chapo and this, uh, these, these brothers, the, the Beltran Leyva brothers, who, you know, they had been allies for, man, for basically their entire career. They were from the, you know, basically the same little towns and they, were, they had worked very closely. And in April of 2008, this alliance blew up and Culiacan was engulfed in conflict. And, you know, you, you, I'm looking at the, they they had the newspapers sort of in in these big leather bound books. And so, you know, you're looking at sort of March, 2008. And in in Mexico, as you know, there's there's a a section of the newspaper, um, La La Nota Roja, Mm -hmm. right? Um, that uh, that has sort of the the sort of bloody violence, yeah. right? And it's not always on the front page; it's often in the back. Um, and so suddenly, uh, in you know, when sort of open hostilities exploded in in Culiacan, that moves to the front page, and that you know, it's, there's all of these headlines about you know, es la guerra, you know, it's war, and um, and. It, it was really, I, 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 you know, it, it helped me construct a picture of what that time looked like. But also, you know, I, I think I tried to go a little bit farther and 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 question that a little bit because I also think that relying, you know, if you just look at newspapers, um, it, it might not give an, an accurate view of what it was actually like to be in the city at that time. You know, I, I spoke to one person who was like, after the initial violence, we, we kind of got used to it, you know, in Culiacan, there's this sort of constant negotiation with ongoing violence. Um, and sometimes it blows up and sometimes it, you know, spills out. Um, but people adapt to a, you know, pretty astonishing um, level of, of violence there. And so it, I, I tried, I was, it was sort of interesting to contrast that with what we see in the, in the front pages of, of just this, you know, nonstop, like violence, 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 violence. Um, so yeah, so I, you know, it, it was useful to to find this like to build this picture of what was happening, um, but also you know useful to see how this narrative was constructed across different newspapers. And there was this funny thing that I write about in the book um, where you know the the one of the um, archivists sort of slyly came up to me and saw me reading um, one of the daily newspapers in. Um, in Sinaloa, and he's like, that one, that one's not so trustworthy. He was like, the most trustworthy is Rio Dulce, which is actually the weekly newspaper that Miguel Alvega, my fixer, works for. 
it's very it's sort of a you know upstart like small scrappy really tough little newspaper so he was like you know that's the best then there's this then there's this you know so and it was it was it was really just like a you know it was a great uh i don't know it was so it was so it was so um useful to get that you know to get that that input from sort of a, a, a local who really knows what he was talking about you know yeah, no, it's really interesting how comparing and contrasting sources allowed you to have this nuanced narrative, which is what was the goal uh, right. that you state from the beginning, to use the myth of El Chapo to tell a story that would go beyond common assumptions. Right. And I know it's tough because we don't have like a lot of time, but what would be the key points of entry to approach a figure like El Chapo and this distance ourselves from the black and white, the bad and good guys narrative. People might watch Narcos Mexico or you know the the El Chapo show on Netflix, um, and think that they understand him. And people might sort of uh, you know know a lot about El Chapo's prison breaks and you know his tunnel in Agua Prieta and his uh, you know interview with Sean Penn and think that they know about El Chapo, but in order, I think, to truly understand who El Chapo is, where he came from, and why he matters or doesn't matter, is to understand sort of that he was, you know, there were, there were events before him that led to his rise, and he was, he, he sort of rode larger trends of, of history and, and, you know, market forces and um, you know, it's I, in the book. I, I try really hard to explain the the relationship between the drug trade and the state in Mexico. You know, it, it, it goes so far beyond what we think of in the United States of as corruption. You know, of like handing an envelope of, co of cash to a dirty cop, right? It's so much more than that. You know, and so and I guess the the best way to say that it's so much more than that is the drug trade and the Mexican state literally grew together, you know? They, they, they were born together. Many of the early drug traffickers were, were sort of former revolutionary uh, figures who went back to their hometown, started growing drugs. I mean, often they became cops, you know? Often they were, they were you know, mayors or sort of local power brokers, and they were also drug traffickers. And they helped keep far-flung, hard-to-access rural parts of Mexico, such as, uh, you know, the, the area of Sinaloa, where El Chapo is from, stable to a certain extent. They helped keep them stable, and they helped keep them voting for the PRI, for the ruling party in Mexico City. And so, you know, the, the, the drug trade was essentially a, a key pillar of support for the, this authoritarian, but relatively limited you know state right the the the, the pri uh there were big parts of the country where they you know had to have these constantly renegotiated relationships with local power brokers and in sinaloa that was often drug traffickers and so you know i i think that understanding that and understanding too the relationship between those political figures in mexico city and the united states who, who, who backed them is really important to understanding 
that this is so much bigger than El Chapo and it's so much bigger than drugs, you know? Um, and that was, I think that was sort of the, the main goal of, of the book. But again, again, there's a lot of that and there's also a lot of, you know, interesting El Chapo shit. So don't worry, folks. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that's, that's what makes this uh, a different story. Actually looking at this story through time and across borders, because it goes beyond Sinaloa, it goes beyond Mexico City, Mexico's borders and the U.S. So I think that's really, really important to take into account. Um, but just coming uh, closer to these dates, last month on July 2021, for those who are listening to us in the future, that was last month, July 2021, Rolling Stone published an excerpt of your book, which highlighted the secret meeting El Chapo had with DA. DEA agents in 1998. Several news portals in Mexico immediately disseminated this information. Why was that such an important piece of information? To be perfectly honest, I kind of thought it was more out there than it was. You know, I, I, I didn't, <laughs> I didn't, uh, I didn't try that hard to sort of overemphasize, like, you know, wow, like this is a, a scoop. Uh, because I kind of thought it was out there. Um, I, I think I knew I had gotten a little bit more detail about it. Um, but uh, when you know, I, I sent a, a copy of the book to Jesus Esquivel, um, the Washington correspondent for Proceso, and he calls me. He's like, Noah, you know, how did you how did you find out about this 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 meeting? You know, you confirmed this meeting between Joe Bond and and El Chapo. Uh, you know, I've only ever heard rumors of that. Like, you know, I'm writing a story about it, and I was sort of like, like, uh, Jesus, um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure. Like, I, I, you know, should we wait until the book is published? He was like, Noah, you gave your fucking book to a reporter. What do you think I'm going to do? You know? <laughs> uh, and I was like, yeah, 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 yeah. You're right. So, just to back up a little bit, um, in, you know, in the book, there's, you know, in 1993, El Chapo was arrested. Um, in connection, in the aftermath of this shooting at the airport in Guadalajara, where um, a uh, Mexican uh, archbishop was was killed, um, Posadas Ocampo. Uh, you know, we don't have time to get into all of the <laughs> conspiracy <laughs> theories around that, but essentially, there was you know the 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 sort of semi official version of it, which I tend to believe to an extent, is that there was a shootout between you know one faction of drug traffickers and another trying one faction of drug traffickers was trying to kill El Chapo. Um, I think there's a certain amount of truth to that. So anyways, El Chapo's arrested. He goes to prison. Um, you know, he, his brother's running his, his operation outside of, of prison and his allies are, are sort of, you know, allowing him to invest in drug, drug shipments, but he's really isolated. Uh, he's at this prison called uh, Puente Grande, um, just outside of Guadalajara. And he is fearful for his life. You know the the um, the other faction of drug traffickers, the Ariano Ariano Felix family, are very powerful, very wealthy, very well connected, and El Chapo is in, is fearful for his life, fearful for the lives of his family members. Um, you know he he only has he only has real direct contact with one guy who's a, a brother-in-law who would come to the prison and, and meet with him. And so one day, this brother-in-law is sent to the U.S. Embassy in Mexico City. And he ends up talking to this DEA agent named Joe Bond, uh, who I spoke to at length and was you know, incredibly helpful in, in helping me understand 
what happened here. So eventually, El Chapo, you know, Joe Bond is able to go to the prison and meet with El Chapo. And, you know, I won't give too much away, but what I think, what I think that that story tells us is El Chapo was always willing to use connections with the state to, to maintain power and to get rid of his enemies. And his enemies were willing to do that too. You know, for much of the history of the drug trade in Mexico, we didn't have these sort of paramilitary private armies, right? They, 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 it was more, first of all, the level of violence was way lower, but you know, if I'm a drug trafficker and I wanna get rid of my rival, you know, I might not go kill him myself. I might just send the cops who work for me to go arrest him or kill him. Um, and so, you know, I, going to the directly to the DEA was maybe a step past that for El Chapo, but he had always, you know, been willing to to use cops and 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 soldiers to enforce his will either directly or indirectly. And so that's what he was trying to do. He was he was trying to feed information to the DEA. And in exchange, he wanted to be protected from extradition and be moved to a different prison. Um, and that didn't really go anywhere. Uh, for, for various reasons, uh, you know, I go more into more detail about that in the book, but that was not El Chapo's last contact with the, with the DEA. You know, he, um, in, in my book, I reveal some, you know, some pretty shocking information about uh, him. You know, he reached out to the DEA after his escape in 2001. And after that, you know, this is something unfortunately that I don't get into too much in the book. But after that, for many years, he his lawyer would have semi regular meetings with DEA agents to feed them information. You know, so this was uh, this was uh, you know we might think of you know there being sort of a taboo on snitching, uh, and that's certainly true for lower level uh, drug traffickers and certainly for civilians um, in Mexico. But you know, if you're a powerful enough drug trafficker, there's no such thing as snitching. You just you know, trying to sort of use the levers of the state to get get your way, um, and so I think that that really that's one of the reasons I think that that resonated in Mexico was because it was just further confirmation of you know the way that this works. Um, but also, uh, you know, in, in talking to to Jesus uh, you know, he was saying that you know if this had come out back then, El Chapo would have been done. Hmm. You know. This was a this was a bit a step farther, you know, reaching out to the DEA, trying to turn in even his, you know, even people that he was close to, he was willing to turn in, and so I think that it really, you know, it it, it does a, a it goes a little ways toward, um, you know, tarnishing this heroic image of El Chapo as an outlaw, and that, that was something that was something you know that that was another thing that I, you know, in the book, I, I open with, the, you know, this, you know, talking about this comparison of El Chapo and Jesus Malverde, you know, the sort of bandit saint in Sinaloa. Um, and I, I really was trying to, um, A, do a little bit of a fake out, honestly, because every single stupid fucking Netflix documentary about Sinaloa includes some fucking B-roll from, uh, from the Jesus Malverde shrine, you know, like, <laughs> We're here at the Jesus Malverde shot. Um, so I, I sort of like started with that, uh, hoping that it, you know readers would be like, "Oh fuck, come on, not again." And then I was like, "But no, 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 no." El Chapo is no Jesus Malverde, and and the reason that I say that is because he, you know, as I said before, the drug trade and drug traffickers 
were essential to the power structure of Mexico. They were not rebelling. They were not going against the PRI. Well, not if they wanted to live, you know, they were not outlaws. In many places, they were the law, you know? And so, and so I think that, you know, throughout the book, I, I really wanted to give a new understanding of why, essentially why El Chapo sucks, you know? Like, <laughs> I, like, cause there's the sort of, oh, he's a cool outlaw narrative. And then there's the sort of pro drug war, like, you know, DEA going to get their man kind of thing, cops and robbers, bullshit. Um, and I wanted to give a new, uh, not new, I can't say new because, you know, my work is, is heavily indebted to the, to the work of many scholars and, and, and reporters. But in, t- in terms of like a book about El Chapo, I wanted to give a, 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 a more nuanced understanding of why, he's, why I don't see him necessarily as a particularly heroic figure. And it's not just because he floods the US with drugs. And it's not just because he has a lot of blood on his hands or because he you know, launches these supposed you know, wars for territory uh, in, in Ciudad Juarez and, and in Tamaulipas and you know, Reynosa. Um, because I think that often we overstate the amount of blood on his hands, which is not to say that he's not you know, a really, really bad guy. He's a really, really bad guy. But I think that sometimes we sort of elide the role of the state in, in that violence in a way that helps the state continue to perpetuate that violence. So I wanted to basically give a more nuanced understanding of why El Chapo is a piece of shit. And one of the, one of the ways that we can do that is by understanding that he is part of this power structure. You know, he's closer in many ways, he and other drug traffickers were closer to cops than robbers. They were cops and robbers. So this episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory. Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Yeah, and that's uh, just one of the many stories you, you tell in your book. There is another one that is central for your narrative, and it's the story of Christian, the IT guy. So what is the relationship between technology, drug cartels, El Chapo, and the FBI? I like if you can tell us a little bit about that, because there are like this uh, weird story about infecting or hacking the all the computers. Uh, I poor, don't know. Poor, Please tell us Christian, more. Poor Christian Rodriguez. Christian Rodriguez, bless his heart, was a is as far as I know, a was a young Colombian, um, basically hacker. You know, uh, he was he, he dropped out of college to start like a, a, a cybersecurity firm. And he started working on the side for a family of, of drug traffickers in Colombia called the Cifuentes family. Who, they are crazy people. And I highly recommend that you, you know, read the book to find out more about, about them because they're insane. Um, but they worked closely with El Chapo. And one of the Cifuentes brothers was actually in Sinaloa as sort of a hostage slash lieutenant to El Chapo. Uh, and so, so they had really bad you know, cell service and Wi-Fi service in the, in the mountains. 
Um, and so Christian goes up there to help them sort of with their with their IT problems. And he's just this like, you know, he's just this young, like he was like 21 at the time, sort of like pudgy, like nerd flying up to meet, you know, one of the most wanted drug traffickers in the world. This is in uh, late, this was in 2008, you know, so El Chapo has been free from prison since 2001. He's um, sort of reestablished himself. He's a very wanted criminal. Uh, and Christian just flies up there and, and, and you know, meets with him. And, and he literally like, gives him a PowerPoint presentation for how this like this encrypted messaging system works. You know, it's like any sort of millennial uh, IT guy explaining the internet to a, an older colleague. Um, or, you know, just a less tech savvy colleague. I don't want to be ageist. But Christian starts working for El Chapo. He sets up this encrypted messaging system that was very sophisticated. And, um, you know, if, if according to law enforcement sources who I spoke to, you know, if, if they hadn't had another way of getting inside the system, they never would have cracked it. But the, the biggest weakness was Christian. And, you know, long story short, uh, the FBI were able to get to him. And, uh, you know, I don't want to give away too much more about that, but Christian Rodriguez was really, uh, you know, a key part of the case against El Chapo and the, uh, you know, and the ability to capture him. And, you know, the other, the, the other part of this, this story, which I you know, think is just so wild is El Chapo asked Christian if he could set up phones with spyware, you know, infected with programs that allowed El Chapo to, you know, he would get a Blackberry and he would infect it with the spyware and he would give it to a, a girlfriend or a, a, you know, an associate or a lieutenant. And he would be able to see everything that happened on the phone. He would even be able to like, you know, he would, he would sometimes call the person and then hang up and then remotely turn on the microphone and listen to see if they were like, oh yeah, you know, I just talked to that piece of shit. Um, he, and he loved it. El Chapo loved this spyware. You know, he, he uh, Christian said it was like a toy to him. You know, he got obsessed with the, the, um, you know, the reports that it generated and, and um, you know, the information. And he, he sort of like, you know, almost playfully, like, you know, he, at one point he wanted to install spyware on a, on a computer that belonged to a girlfriend. And he's like giving, a, uh, he's giving uh, Christian advice. He's like, all right, I'm going to distract her. You go in and set it up, you know? And it's just like, you know, it's just so, it's just this side of him that, that, you know, I don't know if we really knew about prior, you know, the story about Cristiano Rodriguez was totally unknown until it came out at the trial. Um, and it was just, you know, so I, so I found out about it along with everyone else at the trial. There was testimony from Cristiano Rodriguez and from one of his FBI handlers. Um, and after he became an informant, and I also was able to get pretty extensive access to um, federal law enforcement officials who had sort of direct knowledge of the case. And that really helped me sort of like tell this whole story, you know, of, of it's a really dramatic story um, of, of how this young, you know, hacker idiot got in, ensnared with this just massive criminal organization. And, um, you know, he ended up, he, he ended up uh, pretty okay, but he, he, He's, he's still in therapy from the from the stress of that that was something we learned at the trial was you know he 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 was under a lot of stress so yeah that, i mean that, that story is just like you know there's there have to be so many of these 
people at the you know sort of margins of of the drug trade with stories like this you know and i think that christian was was not at the margin he was at the center of it but it was really interesting to see through the eyes of a relatively normal un, you know, unaffiliated civilian obviously he became not a civilian but it was, I, I think he was a really useful you know in, in addition to this just wild story it was a really useful way of looking at the inner workings of El Chapo's um, empire and also just at the sort of like, you know, kind of petty, messy, gossipy bitch that El Chapo was at times. You know, he was a messy bitch who loved drama. But that's really interesting because it also talks about control. You know, the level yes. of control he wanted to have, not only over um, their colleagues in the world trade, or, or, but also over the women that had relationships yes. with, with him. And this brings me to the other question I have for you, because to talk about the drug trade is to mainly talk about a hyper-masculine world right. in which women face very complex situations as love interests or and or as love partners. And sometimes they don't have the choice when they are the love interest of a drug lord. Yeah. Sometimes being a love partner is a matter of survival. Um, yeah. It's so, a prison. Yeah. It's a prison. There is this, um, you know, I, I will acknowledge, I, I wish I could have gone more in depth about sort of the, you know, deeply complex issues of, of gender and, and masculinity and, um, you know, the, the, use and abuse of women within the drug trade. And I did, you know, I did try to touch on that a little bit with El Chapo. That's another thing that, you know, I want readers to understand is that he was really, you know, really pretty disgusting when it came to women. Um, and, you know, as you say, you know, so much of the, the focus is on this like hyper-masculine, you know, um, just fucking cowboy shit. Um, is it okay for me to swear? Is that is that going to get bleeped out? I, I think it's fine. Okay. <laughs> um, you know, it's it's this it's this like tough guy, rugged, you know, badass drug trafficker shtick, and women actually do play a pretty important role. I mean, first of all, there are you know there have been pretty powerful women drug traffickers. Um, you know, I I. Um, but they also, you know, within El Chapo's sort of network, one, one thing that we found out at trial was the extent to which, you know, he wasn't just, you know, dating these women. He was involving them at, at a pretty integral, integral level of, of logistics. You know, we, one girlfriend was, you know, he sent her up to the mountains to buy marijuana and then later, you know, had her elected as a state deputy for the PRI. Um, and, you know, another woman was, was negotiating on El Chapo's behalf with major drug shipments. Um, but he was spying on them the whole time mm -hmm. because he didn't trust them. Uh, and at least one of the women didn't trust him either. There was this, you know, this, this woman named uh, Agustina, um, uh, name doesn't matter. Read the book, you'll see her name. But this one woman who was sort of a girlfriend and also a, a, a an operative on his behalf, you know, he he she texted a friend. She's like, you know, uh, like 
this fucking guy gave me a blackberry but i don't trust it you know he, he thinks he's gonna like spy on me um you know i'm, I'm way smarter than him <laughs> uh so yeah it was it was really you know there, there there is uh there's so much there's so much room i think to explore those the sort of the issues of, of you know the, the role that women play in in the drug trade and and you know, I, I tried to do that a little bit. I probably didn't do it as much as, as I could have. Um, but I think that that is, you know, in terms of, in terms of, you know, things that I, I think you, the listener should, if you're, you know, you should go out and find out more and maybe write, write your own book, you know, find out about this, this, you know, these roles. And there's, you know, there's uh, one reporter, uh, Deb, Deborah Bonello, who is a, a reporter based in Mexico city. She's done great work uh, sort of covering the lives of, of women drug traffickers and, in Sinaloa, um, yeah. Yeah, no, def definitely there are some clues there to look at more. So the, you, as your main goal was to say that there is much more to explain about this complicated yes. story. So that might be one of the ways that is still there to yeah. be built. We are approaching towards the end of the interview and I don't want to finish it without talking about the fact that you dedicated your book to all the victims and survivors of the war on drugs. It is important to remember that countless lives have been lost or forever altered because of this. It might sound like a silly question, but can you share with the audience why it is important to keep them in mind, to keep the victims in mind when we approach the history and current developments of drug cartels? I mean, that's not a silly question at all. That's at the heart of what I wanted to do with this book. And that's why I dedicated it to them. And, you know, I hope, honestly, I, I hope that it's not presumptuous to, to dedicate the book to, to the victims and survivors of the war on drugs. I hope that I've earned the right to do that. I hope that this book has, has honored them enough for me to have the right to do that. Um, this, the violence that has overtaken Mexico in, in the past, You know, 15 years, 16 years, is just staggering. It is, it is blood curdling. It is almost impossible to wrap your mind around. Um, you know, hundreds of thousands of people have been have been murdered. You know, tens of thousands of people have been disappeared. You know, innumerable people have been displaced by violence. Um, and by, you know, uh, either from drug traffickers or from, you know, security forces or from corrupt cops, you know, there's just so much instability and so much loss of life. And, you know, this, this story is, uh, I, I think there's comic elements of it uh, to sort of El Chapo's story. And at times it's hard, you know, it, it's easy to sort of laugh about aspects of his story, but, you know, If you read the book, this is a tragedy. Yes. It is a grinding, brutal tragedy that I don't really see a way out of. I don't have, you know, I, I, I don't end the book with, with many solutions, unfortunately. I think, it, you know, it will take generations to, to unwind what, you know, undo what has been done in Mexico. Um, you know, thanks to the, the actions of the United States government and the, you know, the, um, the government of, of Mexico, 
the the violence that exploded in, in 2007 with the you know the, the sort of launch of this military um, phase of the war on drugs yeah that's a bell that is going to take decades to unring and it's going to take a, a commitment to you know, economic um, justice and and opportunity and stability and transparency uh, and it's not going to happen anytime soon and it's not going to happen fast so ultimately you know I don't I tried to never let the book stray away from the effects of prohibition of the war on drugs, of the drug trade on the people of Mexico, um, because it has been just, it, it's almost beyond words, you know, the, the, what, what, has, what has happened in Mexico. And, you know, I, I, I don't have to tell you that, obviously, um, but, I wanted to give readers, particularly in the United States, a sense of what is happening there, why, you know, why people who join the drug trade might not be like evil drug pushers trying to poison the youth of America, um, but also why, you know, I don't let them off the hook. I want readers to understand that their government is culpable in this. You know, the U.S. at every step has, has pushed the government of Mexico to uh, take sort of dramatically more militarized uh, operations against or supposedly against drug traffickers. And that has wreaked untold damage in Mexico. You know, the, the, sort of the so-called kingpin theory of arresting the, the you know, top leader of so-called cartels has resulted in immense fragmentation of criminal groups across Mexico who have, you know, in some cases, you know, they're not even that involved with drug trafficking anymore because they don't have the, the logistics to, to do it. So what do they do? They're not going to stop being criminals. They, they turn inward, you know. Previously, you know, the drug trade in many ways was a cancer on, on Mexican society, but it was focused on getting drugs to the United States. And now you have so much more extortion, kidnapping, um, you know, uh, criminal control of, uh, of legal agriculture, like limes and avocados in, in, in Michoacan and Guerrero, um, you know, you have uh, just the, 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 this, this fragmentation and this increased competition among criminal groups has led to so much more violence, so much more um, instability, and so much more targeting of the people of Mexico. And so I want readers to see the names and faces of the victims of this and understand that their government has played a key role in this happening. You know, so much talk of like of you know so-called drug cartels in Mexico highlights the savagery. You know, highlights the the brutality of these of these criminal networks, the the beheadings and the you know fucking car bombings and the bodies dumped in in public plazas. Um, and it divorces it from the causes and it divorces it from. You know, it, it, it's almost seen as like irrational. When actually, you know, there's very rational reasons for why these groups do these things, like why they try to get publicity like that, why they try to build a brand and have you know people fear them. Um, and I wanted readers to understand, you know, why that's happening and what role their government, you know, the United States government has in that. It's not exclusively the fault of the United States government, but at the root of this is the fact that the U.S. government has repeatedly pushed 
Mexico to take symbolic and ineffective steps to supposedly combat the drug trade. And the, the, the fallout of that is just incalculable. Yeah, and it is really important to keep all of that in mind. Just to end possibly, I don't know, in a different note, <laughs> is there any story that did not make it to the book or one that you particularly remember from all of your process? Oh, like something that comes to mind from the many stories I'm pretty sure you encountered. So, uh, yeah, um, speaking of women in the drug trade, um, I don't want to give too many details about her because you know, I hope to, A, I don't want to blow up her spot, but also I would love to potentially focus on, like, you know, talk to her more. I had this really interesting relationship with a source in Culiacan who was sort of almost like drug trafficking royalty. You know, she was a, a relative, a younger relative of a very prominent drug trafficker in the 1960s and 70s who she personally had gotten involved in the drug trade in, um, in, the, in the 70s through the 80s. Um, and, you know, it, it, her, her, at least one of her sons is, uh, I guess her only son, her son is still quite involved. Um, and, you know, it, I was able to get to know her and I would see her every time I would go to Culiacan. We had a really interesting relationship. She always called me a, a Ben Affleck. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, You know, she would, we would go hang out. She sometimes threw parties and I would go and like help her carry beer. Um, unfortunately, she didn't make it into the book at all. Um, it was just a little bit too much of a sort of side thing. Um, even though she was arguably my best, you know, so my best source. Um, and I don't think she's talked to any other reporters ever, you know, so um, I really... I really would love to have gotten her into the book more. I think, you know, to, she had a really interesting understanding of the early drug trade, you know, the, in the 60s, 70s. Um, you know, she had, I, when, the first time I went to her house, she had a, a framed uh, portrait of um, uh, El Azul, uh, Jose Juan Jose uh, Esparagosa uh, Morena, who was a very sort of old school drug trafficker who was, you know, connected to El Chapo for a long time and was, um, you know, uh, just very sort of, you know, puro Sinaloa, old school caballero, you know. And you know, she had a framed picture of him. He was, she was like, puro, puro caballero. Like, like she, you know, he's just, he's, He's a, he's a man, he's a real, you know, they don't make him like, make him like that anymore. And, you know, she, she told me, like, you know, I asked her about old, uh, old drug trafficking figures from that era. And, you know, she's like, El Azulsi, like, uh, you know, Neto Fonseca, you know, fuck that guy. He had my husband killed, you know? And like, I asked her about Miguel Angel Felix Gallardo and she said, he wasn't a trafficker, you know, he was puro policia. And what she meant by that was that, you know, it wasn't that he wasn't involved in the drug trade, But he wasn't necessarily like a you know a guy from the Sierra like moving loads of drugs. He was sort of the liaison between traffickers and the and the police and the government and the you know political 
she is. And so, you know, she just, she, she knew everything. And honestly, the fact that she didn't know El Chapo until, you know, or know about El Chapo until the, you know, early 1990s tells me that, you know, El Chapo was, was not that important until then, you know, cause she fucking knew everybody. Um, so someday I, you know, we still text sometimes, you know, um, so she, she loves sending me like WhatsApp memes, you oh, know, she's yeah. very like, very like, you know, like Mexican auntie, but, uh, <laughs> you know, retired cocaine queen, um, really fascinating character and just, you know, I, I, I can't wait to um, hopefully, you know, be able to share, you know, share her life with the world in a way that, you know, is, is honorable and respectful to, to her. And not just, um, I want people to understand her because I think she's a great way of understanding women in the drug trade in Mexico. And also um, just what it's like to grow up in this environment. She sounds fascinating. Uh, well, Noah, we've taken up a lot of your time. Just to close this conversation, where do you go from here as a reporter uh, in these topics? What What's next? When I first started this book, I, I had a conversation with a, a, a reporter who had you know, done a lot, had many more years of, of experience covering this than I did. And he, he told me, he's like, look, man, when this book is done, you either have to stop covering the drug war in Mexico or you, you just, you can you know, do it forever. You're just going to go down that rabbit hole. And honestly, it's too late. I am down that rabbit hole. You know, I am, I am in, I'm, I'm in too deep. Um, I, on the one hand, you know, I, I'm very sensitive to the fact that I, you know, personally, you know, this, this book has personally improved my life. And so I don't want to be, I don't want to sort of, use this this painful story to just and then just move on to the next topic i really want to dig deeper i want to go beyond the you know the individuals the, the well-known people and i want to um, explore the sort of systemic um aspects of 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 you know of violence in mexico honestly i kind of want to go beyond drugs you know i want to i want to look at the you know better examine the links between politics and, and, and violence and, you know, extractive industries and violence. You know, there's been a lot of really good writing um, from people like uh, uh, Don Paley, who wrote uh, this book called Drug War Capitalism, about, you know, these very suspicious coincidences of, you know, uh, violence flaring up in areas of Mexico where uh, the government wants to give mining concessions or natural gas mm. concessions to multinational corporations you know and so I, I i want to start to develop a better understanding of you know beyond drugs of violence and power so that we can you know try to figure out how to get the fuck out of this cycle of, of, of violence and, and, and misery and exploitation You know, so uh, I have no idea what I'm doing next. I need to rest a little bit. You know, yeah, after this book. I am very tired after the last two years. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, I really, I really want to continue un like learning about um, Mexico. So, uh, you know, I did not take my friend's advice and, and walk away after this book. I'm, I'm in too deep.
that's it. Well, I hope you get uh, the time to get some rest. And after that, you can start with this following these clues that sound not only interesting, but necessary to understand all of these complexities of the current Mexican history. Noah, thank you very much for being on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been so fun to, to, to chat. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and it's, it's an honor to, to be able to you know, explain this book and, and, and my process. And, uh, I hope people read it and I hope they like it. And, you know, if, if people want to give me feedback, I am very accessible on, on Twitter. Um, my handle is just my name, Noah Horowitz. Um, and I also, you know, you asked for what's next um, in the, in the short term. Um, I have a newsletter. Uh, it's just noahhorowitz.substack.com, um, and you can you can sign up there. And I'm you know uh, going to be sort of expanding on topics in the book, expanding on sort of arguments that that I that I made in the book, expanding on anecdotes from the reporting, um, and sort of you know trying to go a little bit deeper in in, in coverage of of the war on drugs. And uh, you know I'm just starting to get that off the ground, uh, but Um, I ha you know, I, if people want to uh, subscribe to that, they, they, they should. And hopefully that's going to be a sort of a vehicle to, to you know, go, go a little bit deeper here. Okay. Then the invitation is open to subscribe to the newsletter, to follow Noah on Twitter and to read El Chapo, the untold story of the world's most infamous drug lord. It was a great conversation. Take care. Amanda, thanks so much. Thanks, everybody, for listening to New Books in Latin American Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. Until next time, hasta pronto.